exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. In the book Adopted for Life by Russell Moore, Moore tells the story about he and his wife adopted two boys from a Russian orphanage who were born only a few weeks apart from one another. And so when people found out that their boys were adopted from Russia, the natural question that most people would ask Russell Moore would be, are they brothers? To which Moore responded, they are now. But inevitably, there'd be a follow-up question. But are they really brothers? And Moore would get a little annoyed, and he said, yes, in the Moore household, they really are brothers. And as Russell Moore got this question over and over again, he realized that this is the question of the New Testament. And this is the question we asked last week as we finished Ephesians chapter 2. Within the church, are the Jews and Gentiles really brothers? You know, when Christianity started, even the Roman government considered Christians to be Jews because it was a Jewish movement with Jewish leaders who believed in a Jewish Messiah with Jewish scriptures. That, that was the core fundamental foundation of what Christianity is. And as Christianity began to spread, it was natural that there, there's a group that arose within the church that said, hey, if you want to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. So you have to obey all the laws of Moses. You got to get circumcised. You need to obey the kosher food laws. You need to keep all the feasts and festivals and Sabbaths. But then in walks the Apostle Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, who kept all the laws of Moses. And he says, no, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. And in Christ, you are now brothers. And the inevitable follow-up was always, but are they really brothers? If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 3 is on page 1160. And as you're turning, let me say that, I don't know if it's because I'm from the South, but I'm used to calling everyone brother or sister because down South, everyone says that in the church. It, it's normal. Even the pastor at the church where I became a Christian, he wasn't referred to as pastor or priest or whatever. We, we called him Brother Mike. That was his title. And, and so I noticed something when I moved up here, y'all didn't do that nearly as much. And so I remember there was a few of you, I, I called you brother or sister, and you looked at me like I was a 10-foot purple Peter, people eater. <laughs> and whether or not you're up to date on your Christianese, I'm sure most of us kind of feel that way. Like, I'm not really your brother. I get it. We're brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. Of course, we'd all agree that within the church, we're brothers and sisters. But let me ask you, do you really believe that? Are we really brothers? And my prayer this morning is that by the end of this sermon, we could walk out of here embracing the fact that we really are a family, a family that runs deeper than blood. Because in Ephesians 3, we're going to find three features of what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. First, in verses 1 through 5, the mystery of the gospel must be revealed. Second, in verses 6 through 10, the mystery of the gospel must be experienced together. Third, in verses 11 through 13, the mystery of the gospel was planned. The mystery of the gospel was, must be revealed and must be experienced together, and it was planned. So let's pray. We'll dive into the mystery. Almighty God, you are the shepherd of, our, of the sheep, and we are the people of your pasture. And as we study your word, 
May the lost be called home, the sheep be fed. May you receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Look at me to verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And stop right there. It's crazy to me that in verse one, Paul would call himself a prisoner of Christ because at that exact moment, Paul was sitting in a Roman prisoner cell. Humanly speaking, Paul was Caesar's prisoner. But Paul was not the kind of guy who understood the world purely in human terms. So because Paul believed so strongly that God was in control of everything, he was so convinced of the lordship of Christ. Paul says, I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Because Paul understood who was really in charge. And even in his sufferings, Paul saw the hand of God at work. Why was he in prison? Because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jewish leaders of of whatever city he would go to would reject Jesus as their Messiah, and then they would start riots to kick Paul out of town. In fact, in Acts 21, when Paul actually goes back to Jerusalem, we read that they were mad at Paul because, quote, this is the man who is teaching everyone against the people and the law in his temple. I bet you anything that Paul's sermon sounded like Ephesians 2 and 3. And it was because of that message that Paul was a prisoner. He was in prison as verse 1 on behalf of the Gentiles. And notice at the end of verse 1 that most of your Bibles, you'll see a little dash. Why is that there? Well, in verse 1, Paul begins a sentence and he does not finish it. And I'll tell you what, verse 1 drove me absolutely up the wall this week because he started the, the, the sentence, doesn't finish it. And, and, and what I normally do is I take whatever passage I'm preaching and, and I print it out in front of me. So I've got verses 1 through 13 and I'm like, does he just not finish it? Where does he finish it? Where, what is he talking about? And what was he going to say? There's not even a verb in verse 1. He just introduces himself as the subject and then his thought gets interrupted by something. And so by the point that I was finally like, I'm, I give up. I have no idea what this is saying. I don't know what Paul was going to say. So I do what I always do when I can't figure something out. I call Nathan Herman. <laughs> and with all of his advanced theological education, he told me, look down to verse 14, <laughs> which I did not have right in front of me. Because you look to verse 14, it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's talking about, I'm, I pray. He continues his thought in verse 14 that he began in verse one. And we're going to dive into verse 14 next week. But it's interesting that before Paul can even finish his sentence, he has something so important to say that before he continues his train of thought, he pauses for 12 verses to remind them of something important. Nathan Herman called this a holy rabbit trail. Look at me to verse two. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Paul begins his holy rabbit trail by reminding the Ephesians of two things. Number one, his conversion. Number two, his mission to the Gentiles. Just in case you're not familiar with the story, let me sum it up by saying Paul went around murdering Christians. No friend to the church. He's not the highly expected convert. He was not a seeker. He was not interested in what the Christians had to say. And it was when Paul went on the road to Damascus that Christ appeared to him. He was blinded for three days and he's converted, believes in Jesus, becomes an apostle of Jesus. And then it's a few years later that Paul is given the mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what he means by his stewardship of God's grace. To steward something means to manage something or to be in charge of it. And if you're reading Galatians 2, Peter was 
in charge of the mission to the Jews. That was his stewardship. And Paul was in charge of the mission to the Gentiles. That was Paul's stewardship. And everyone in the church was well aware that Paul's mission was to reach the Gentiles. And surely they would have heard about his conversion story. So when Paul says, assuming you've heard, I think he's speaking rhetorically. It'd be like someone today saying, assuming you've heard of COVID-19. I think that uh, that's what Paul is communicating with those words. And that's why in these verses, he does not go into the details of his conversion or the mission that he was given, but he's just like, I've written about this before. You can check the notes. And then in verse four, he writes, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And now we dive into the mystery. Paul already mentioned this mystery once in chapter one. He'll do it again in chapter five and then again in chapter six. But here in chapter three, he mentions the mystery four times. And before we get into what the mystery is, you need to know that Paul does not mean the kind of mystery that that we mean. He's not meaning what we think he means. When we hear the word mystery, we think of something that's difficult to understand So for instance, sometimes you'll hear people say, the Trinity is a mystery. What they really mean is, it's hard to think about. It is difficult to comprehend. But here, Paul is using the Greek word mysterion, which, which means more like something is hidden or secret. Because before Jesus came, only the Hebrews had access to the word of God. Before Jesus came, only Israel had any hope of knowing the true God. Before Jesus came, the gospel was hidden, secret, concealed from the nations. Let me tell you something. We think we're owed God speaking to us. We think we're owed the scripture. We think it's unfair if God does not reveal himself to us. But by testament of history and God's word, we are owed nothing. Every time that God condescends to our level and speaks to us and communicates to us, it is an act of his divine grace. Because why did he choose Israel? Was it because they were stronger or more righteous or more spiritual than any other nation? No, if you read Deuteronomy 7, God actually says, you are the fewest of all peoples. If you read Deuteronomy 7, 7, it's so interesting. God says, I set my love upon you because I loved you. God loved them simply because he chose to love them as an act of his grace. And now in verse 5, the grace that was extended towards Israel has been revealed to the nations. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul's talking about the Spirit-inspired scriptures, the Old Testament written by the prophets, the New Testament's written by the apostles. And that's because it's in this book. It's in the Bible that you understand the mystery of the gospel, Old and New Testament. That's what Jesus taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus when beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus showed them how all the scriptures pointed to himself. The mystery was a mystery to the Gentiles because they were outside of the covenant of Israel. But the Israelites had the word of God and many of them did believe in the Messiah to come. The whole Old Testament is leading up to Jesus and preaching about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. And it's pointing to that moment when Jesus would come to die on a cross. And if you look carefully enough in your Old Testament, there are shadows of him everywhere. And in the New Testament, we don't just find his shadow. We get the full substance. In the New Testament, 
We get the whole picture. We get the mystery revealed in the gospel. We get the full plan and it's sent out among the nations. Let me tell you, you can, you can learn a lot about God from nature, amen? Heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Like just go for a hike today, take an umbrella, I guess, and, and go out on a high peak and look out on the horizon and just take it in and, and reflect on the grandeur of God's creative abilities and look and marvel at the beauty of his handiwork. Creation is constantly testifying to the greatness and the glory of its creator. But listen to me, you cannot find the gospel under a rock. You can't read about the cross in the clouds. You can't see the Savior in the seven seas. If you want to know how to be saved, if you want to know this mystery, it must be revealed to you by the Spirit, either by God himself or by his messengers, the prophets and the apostles. And the good news is that we have access to this revelation through the word of God. Amen. And even if we go to 1 Corinthians 2, we realize that that this book, because it is a spirit-inspired book, it is a supernatural book that cannot be understood by someone without the spirit. Bogshire writes there, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. The only way any of us can understand a single verse of the Bible is if God reveals it to you by the spirit. That should humble us. That by his grace, he is preaching to us and communicating and still even teaching us through his word by the spirit. That's the first feature of the mystery of the gospel, that it must be revealed. But something incredible about this mystery is that it's also meant to be experienced together. Look at me to verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 6 would have sent shockwaves through the church of his day. Fellow heirs? Really? Like, you know what it means to be an heir? It means that you are part of the same family with the same father. Like, I'm a Gentile myself. I I know that, that as I've been reflecting on this, I don't think I've ever fully understood the gravity of what it meant to pray our father until I studied this passage. You mean Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Moses, David, and Elijah. I get to say to him, our father, with the rest of the saints. And then think about the inheritance. What does that mean? Does that mean that every Christian gets a plot of land in the Middle East with our name on it? That we can go and take the Holy Land because it is our right? Absolutely not. There has been endless fighting over the promised land, and I suspect there will always be. Remember what Hebrews 4 says. In Hebrews 4, we read that when Joshua ushered the Israelites into the promised land, they never truly had rest in the land. But God spoke about another day of rest to come. And I think that's why in Revelation, heaven is described as the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the promised land was never the final destination. It's never the end goal. It's never the finding resting place. And and for those who are in Christ, heaven is our true promised land, our everlasting resting place, the ultimate inheritance of both Jew and Gentile. And then look at that phrase, members of the same body. As Christians, every believer is a member in the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile. There are many godly, intelligent Christians 
who would argue that God has two peoples, that, that, that there are two bodies, essentially, Israel and the church, and that the two are distinct from one another. And while I respect that position, I am not convinced that that's what the Bible teaches. In John 10, there is one flock. In Ephesians 5, there is one bride. In Ephesians 3, here, there is one body together, Jew and Gentile combined. And in verse 3, it's not as if one body replaces the old body. That some would even go so far as to say is the church replaces Israel. I don't think that's right. But rather the picture here is that Jew and Gentile are united into the same body. Jews were near, Gentiles far off, but brought near. Both partaking in the same promise. Which raises the question, which promise is Paul talking about? He doesn't say the promises, plural. He says the promise. There's a lot of promises in the Bible. Which promise? And, and I think my best guess would be the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Because back in Genesis 12, we meet a man named Abram, and God chose Abram and his family out of all the families of the earth, and God promised Abram three things. You get land, you get lots of kids, and you get blessing. That God said, leave the land of your fathers into the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And the focus for the rest of the Old Testament is on this family and the nation they become. There are, of course, many famous examples of Gentiles who join the people of God from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, to Rahab the prostitute, to Ruth the Moabite. But by and large, in the Old Testament, the focus is on Israel, which is why it is so surprising that when Jesus shows up and he dies on the cross, we read in John 3, for God so loved world. If you were living in Israel that time, you expected to read, for God so loved Israel that he sent his son. God loves Israel. He dies for Israel. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were limited to God's covenant people. That's it. And now we see a sacrifice for all peoples, of all nations, of all tongues, of all tribes. And now if you, you, let's take a step back. Look at what Christianity has become. Believe it or not, Christianity is the most ethnically and culturally diverse movement in history. You ever thought about that? No other movement rivals the diversity that we see in the followers of, of Jesus. In fact, we oftentimes think of, of Christianity as the white man's religion, as this Western idea that was taken from Europe. But, but if you remember, the earliest roots of Christianity were in the Middle East the ancient of Africans in Ethiopian with the Ethiopian eunuch. And now today, the underground church in China has reached over 100 million. By the year 2050, it is estimated that one out of every eight people living on the earth will be an African Christian. Not one out of eight Christians will be African, but one out of eight people in the world will be African Christians. This movement has taken the world by storm. No movement rivals it. So how do we go from one family to this movement with the greatest cultural and ethnic diversity the world has ever known? Well, you go back to God's promise to Abram. I left out one crucial part in Genesis 12, 3, where God says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan was never meant to end with Israel. God's plan was always to reach the nations and to bring them back into the fold, to reach all the families of the earth. You know why Abram changed his name to Abraham? 
Because Abram means father of many, but Abraham means father of many nations. And in Romans 4, we learn that now through the cross, whoever has the same faith that Abraham had, they are counted as children of Abraham, partakers in the promise. And that is how Abraham becomes the father of many nations. The father Abraham and many sons. And many sons had father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. You see the other VBS kids in here who, who knew that song. In that simple song, which has been stuck in my head for 25 years now, I've never been able to forget it. We see the beautiful promise that in Romans 4, the dirty Gentiles who were alienated from God outside of the covenant, separated from God, deserving of nothing but God's justice, through faith, they are counted as sons of Abraham. Because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Not by his works, but simply through believing. Abraham trusted in the promises of God and God declares him, boom, you're righteous. And that salvation works the same way today. It's not by our works, not by our church attendance, not by the sacraments, not by our church membership, but it is only through faith in Christ that God says, boom, righteous. And in that faith, we inherit that promise from Genesis 12, 3. We are blessed by the children of Abraham, by Abraham's seed. So now, you know how you become a fellow heir. You know how you become a member in the body of Christ. You know how you partake of the promise? Once again, by having the same faith that Abraham had. By believing the gospel of Jesus. For Jesus came and lived the life that you and I have failed to live. He died the death you deserved. And on the cross, he bore our sins in his own body. And then he rose triumphantly over sin and death. And now he serves in heaven as the one mediator between God and man. And through his blood, we have access to the same father with Israel. That through faith alone in the Savior, by his grace, God is your father in heaven, your home, your church, your family, and the promises are yours. Christian, if your promises are in Christ, God is your father, heaven is your home, the church is your family, and the promise is yours. That was what Paul's message is. That's why he was arrested. Is he sorry for preaching it? Absolutely not. Look to verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the insertable riches of Christ. Stop there. Paul's mindset is this. I was saved by grace so that I could go on and spread the message of grace. That Paul recognized that he was saved for service, not solitude. That though Paul was persecuting the church and killing Christians left and right and least deserving of grace, God saved him so that he could be one of the greatest forces for the spread of Christianity. So why did God save you? When God gives someone the gift of grace, you can be sure that he's got a job in mind for you. He has got work for you to do. So what is your role in the kingdom of God? It's common. Most churches... 10% of the people do 90% of the work. You ever heard that? You ever been a part of that 10%? <laughs> I think any church that operates that way is in disrepair. 
In America, we're very individualistic. We're all about individual rights and privacy. And we, we often even, when we think about our faith, we think about I'm saved for me. It's my personal private faith. And listen, your faith needs to be personal, but it should also be public. And it also should be united with other believers around you. And that's just the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. In our community, we have hungry people who need food and lost people who need the gospel. And in our church, we need repairs for our building. And I need more deacons and singers and musicians and teachers and preachers and nursery workers. So let me tell you this. If the Lord has given you the gift of grace, where are you going to serve? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the hearts of the saints would be enlightened. Well, here in verse 9, Paul uses the same word enlightened, but now for non-Christians. And here Paul is the vehicle bringing the message of the gospel. And he's saying, I came to bring the light that as I'm preaching, God shines the light in people's heart. And then at the end of verse 9, he reminds them, God who created all things. And I think in verse 9, the reason he brings in creation is because Paul is saying that in the same way that God said, let there be light at creation. So he continues to say, let there be light in the hearts of those who hear the gospel preached. And it's by this miracle of divine illumination as the gospel is being heralded in the hearts of the lost that God creates a family. He creates a community. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, in the Reformation, we recognize that we are not saved by church membership or the sacraments, but by grace alone through faith alone. And we, re- we need to be really careful not to jump to the opposite extreme and view the church as our enemy. Because I, I was raised up even going to Catholic school, and I was aware of all the sacraments and the traditions. And, and so when I left that, I was anti-religion. Like, like, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. I almost got that tattooed on my back. That's how much I was invested in that kind of idea of, let's, let's not be a part of the church. We don't need the church. We don't need that organization. We just need Jesus. And the church is not essential for salvation. Obviously not. But we are not saved for solitude. We are saved to experience the mystery of God together. He saves us for service. While the church is not required for salvation, it doesn't mean it's not important. And while Paul never argues that the church is what saved you, Paul certainly had an extremely high view of the church. Get this. Verse 10 is saying that when we come together as God's people, Jew and Gentile, white and black, young and old, rich and poor, when we come together united by the gospel, the wisdom of God is made known to both the devil and demons. Why do I say that? Because later in Ephesians, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's the same phrases. So in verse 10, it seems like these are the dark powers of the world, which is insane to think about. I feel like demons are often presented in our culture as these all-powerful, all-knowing forces of evil that, that like rival God's power, that there's the secret struggle between evil and good, and, and the scales could tip either way at any moment. But in the Bible, there could be nothing further from the truth. 
in real time, as we gather as a church this morning, as every church gathers and grows and expands and evangelizes and continues to glorify the Lord through the people of all nations, the mystery of gospel is being continually revealed to these demonic forces. You know, at the cross, Jesus has decisively defeated Satan. But as the church on earth continues to gather, we are assigned to the devil that his days are numbered, that every person saved, every church planted is reclaiming land for the kingdom of God as it expands and as the kingdom of God in heaven comes on earth. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Let me tell you, church, even in the face of persecution and death and disease and disarray, every time the gospel is believed, every time a new believer comes to faith, every time a new church is planted, we are making the wisdom of God known, even to the evil rulers of this world. And to be clear, Paul isn't just saying the good churches are doing that. I think Paul is saying that every true church, with all of her flaws and scars, every church is an unveiling of the mystery of the gospel. To quote Russell Moore again, the scriptures reveal to us what we would never discern on our own. The church, not an ideal congregation, but the real one you go to every week with the lady who smacks her gum and the man with the pitiful comb over hair and the 1970s era audio system and the kids banging Tonka trucks on the back of the pew in front of you is the flesh and bones of Jesus. It is his body. He tells us, inseparable from him as your heart and lungs and kidneys and fingers are from you. The mystery of the gospel must be experienced together within the context of a local church. When we come together from different cultures, different countries, at different ages and ethnicities, that's what it means to participate in the mystery of the gospel. And that was God's plan from the beginning. Because not only must the mystery of the, God, of, the, of the gospel be revealed and participated in, but the mystery of the gospel was also planned. Look to verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You ever wonder why God didn't send Jesus right away? Like Genesis 1 to 2, we read that God made everything. Genesis 3, we read that man sinned and messed everything up. So why don't we read Genesis 4? And Eve gave birth to a son, and his name was Jesus. Like, that's, that, that's my plan. That's the way I would have written the story, but that's not what we read. Instead, chapter 4, Eve has two sons, one murders the other. And then humanity just gets worse and worse until God presses restart. He sends a flood and only saves one man and his family, Noah. And then as soon as they're off the boat, Noah gets drunk and messes everything up again. And we're back to square one. And it's not until Genesis 12 that we finally get some hope. And we think, finally, it's through this man that we're going to receive the blessing and God's going to send a savior. And then it takes literally another 917 chapters before Jesus is finally born. Why did it, God, did it take God thousands and thousands of years to send his son into the world? Because in all of God's wisdom and insight, this was his plan from eternity past. That's what verse 11 means by God's eternal purpose, that in eternity past, God planned to send Jesus at exactly the right moment. Let me tell you, church, this church was not God's backup plan. 
God was not surprised when Adam and Eve took the fruit. It was the plan from before Genesis 1 to send a Savior to unite all peoples together as one people. God's long-term plan was always to save people of every family. You know, when I was a kid, I was given this little book that was meant to store a quarter for every one of the 50 states and then a couple more. I see a couple of you got that as a kid. Well, I remember every time I came in contact with a quarter, I was getting excited and I was checking the back and seeing if that was a quarter I needed from. And and I was looking for all the different states. And and slowly as my book began to fill up more and more and I was down to like the last 10 quarters, I suddenly began going up to every adult as a seven-year-old and saying, do you have any quarters? Can I see your quarters? Can I look at your quarters? And I was obsessed. I was on the hunt. Well, sadly, I never completed my collection because once again, I was seven. (laughs) And I did not have the resources nor the attention span to finish the job. (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. Our God is in a way the ultimate collector. That from before the foundation of the world, it was God's desire to collect every kind of person, all in his image, but beautifully and diversely designed. That God recognizes the beauty in all of the different ethnicities and races and cultures and tongues and peoples. And it is his desire and plan for every kind of person to be at the throne room of God in the end. And let me tell you what. Our God lacks no resources. He never gets distracted. And his plans always prosper. Amen? And, and, and now, not only do we see this collection coming together in the church all around the world, but we know that in heaven, God will have a complete collection. For in Revelation, we read that after this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes. God's purposes never fail. His plan began in eternity past, was accomplished at Calvary, and extends into eternity future. And it's by this plan that we have access to him through Christ. It's also because of this plan that Paul could tell the Ephesians, don't lose heart. I'm in prison on my way to be executed, but don't lose heart. For this is according to God's eternal plan. Can you believe that? That Paul saw the, the hand of God even in his own incoming imminent death. Can you count it all joy when sufferings and trials come your way? Can you recognize the hand of God even in the sorrows that are sent towards you? My prayer this morning was that we could walk out of here embracing the fact that we really are a family because in Ephesians 3, we found three features of the mystery of the gospel that it must be revealed, must be experienced together, and it was planned. So today, I have three pastoral charges for you. Let's go into them. First pastoral charge. Number one, come into the family of God. Come into the family of God. I'll tell you, my my last name is Callan. And believe it or not, I was born a Callan. I did not choose that name. Uh, I'm a Callan by blood because my father is a Callan. And fun fact, my wife Katie is also a Callan, but thankfully not by blood. How did she become a Callan? Through covenant through a marriage covenant, when she vowed to be my wife by virtue of her promise, she became a part of the Callan household. And the good news this morning is that to be a part of God's people in the new covenant is not marked by ethnicity or blood or culture or location, but simply through faith in the Savior, the mediator of the new covenant. 
So for all who will repent of their sin, for all who put their faith alone in the cross of Christ, for all who bear the name of Christ, they will be adopted into God's covenant family. Second pastoral charge, commit to the family. I'll just warn you, this one's a little long. Commit to the family. You were not saved by grace so that you could live separate from your brothers and sisters. If you were given the gift of grace, then you were saved to serve your family. And I don't know what your gifting is, but every member in the body of Christ is indispensable. We've got a lot of churches here walking around with one foot and one ear and one eye because saints are neglecting their duty. We desperately need your gifts here. And the expectation of the New Testament is to commit to a local church through membership and to primarily pour into that church. I know there may be some of you that aren't even sure that church membership is biblical. I know I wrestled with this for a long time as I was reading and studying the Bible. Uh, And there are godly Christians, I'll say, who are smarter than me, who would deny that church membership is biblical. But let me offer one verse. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So a few questions. Who am I, or let me say this. Christian, who are you called to obey? As a pastor, who am I called to give an account for? Should you obey every pastor you ever encounter? Because let me tell you something. There's pastors out there that are straight up nuts. They're, they're kooky dukes. They're, they're wild. You should not listen to a word they say. I think the assumption of the New Testament is that every believer is formally committed to a local body of believers through church membership with a pastor and with other members who are committed to them. And let me say, look, if you, if you still don't think church membership is biblical, I can respect that position. And I love you. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. But if you're in here and you don't have a theological problem with the concept of church membership and you just have commitment problems, it's time to get off the bench and get into the game. I don't care if it's this church or another Bible-believing church. Commit to, attend, support, pray for, love a specific local church because that's where the gifts of grace that God gave us are put into action. That's where the mystery of the gospel is really lived out. And let me warn you, if you stay in this church and if you get involved and you get to know the other Christians in this church, they will sin against you sometimes in major ways. There will be days when you'll just want to cut and run to the next church or just drop church altogether. If your commitment to a church is based on how wonderful the people are, you're going to church hop for your entire life. However, if the commitment you have for the church is based on the grace that saved you and the mission God gave you, then you'll be able to forgive others when they sin against you. And you'll be able to receive forgiveness when you sin against one another. Finally, hope in God's eternal plan. Hope in God's eternal plan. Remember what Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For whatever reason, when I was a new Christian, I heard that verse and I thought that the church was like this fortress and Satan was constantly attacking us and we would just barely make it through. And I I think part of the reason why I had that mindset as a new believer is because in the church, we're total downers. We're so negative about the state of the world. The world's out of control. Everything's getting worse and worse. Oh no, what are we going to do? But as the church, Jesus did not teach us that we're meant to be simply survivors, but to be conquerors. The image is attacking the gates of hell and knocking them down. For it was from God's plan from eternity past, he is executing it. No one can stop it. And we can rest knowing that nothing can come against us unless the father allows it. 
We need to be victorious Christians, ready to reclaim ground for the kingdom of God. For we know that no matter what we face, what persecution flies for us, even if we lose our very lives, God wins in the end and his plan will not fail. So whether peace comes our way like a river or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot, trusting in God's eternal plan, we can still say it is well with my soul. And all the people said, Amen. let's pray. Almighty Father, you are Lord of all from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. And we praise you for revealing to us the glorious mystery of your will. May we treasure it in our hearts, proclaim it with our lips, and display it with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.